What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina of SB Nation. <laughs> now, Michael, I was waiting for this to happen. You know, every once in a while, you strike a chord on a podcast and the emails flood in. And I could not believe after our last episode where you uh, made a reference to someone who was a friend of the pod. And it turned out, really, that person was just your friend. And now you're referring to yourself <laughs> as the pod in third person. Um, I thought that would be just a little funny aside. Oh, my goodness, did that catch on. I think I probably sent you three or four emails, but there was a lot more of people who have just decided to call you the pod. So I'm curious. Um, obviously, keeping your ego in check is going to be an ongoing issue for me. Um, but how are you feeling right now? Are you flush with power um, are you feeling kind of, you know, top of the world now that everybody's uh, embraced your new uh, self-given nickname? Yeah, I mean, I got to say, I've always wanted a nickname and these things just matriculate organically, as you know, Ben. So here we are. I guess this is my new life going forward and uh, I'm embracing it. Yeah, as I said, I think I quoted the Nas song to you about how you're murdering me on my own stuff, you know? I mean, like, <laughs> you're coming on to Open Floor, and you're just claiming it for yourself. You're taking over the blocks. You're calling yourself The Pod, and I'm just going to try to fit in where I can. But in that vein, I'm just going to open up with one of your adoring fan messages, if that's okay, because I believe it will set you up pretty well for a story you wrote this week that I think is kind of a great discussion topic as we start to work through the uh, the implications here of the NBA's uh, suspended schedule and also, of course, the ongoing uh, coronavirus crisis. All right, we got an email from Kyle, an Open Floor Globe member, who emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And he writes, first time, long time, Michael, great job keeping Ben in check. All basketball podcasts have the same stats, games, and narratives to discuss, so clearly the banter is the brand. I was trepidatious at first, but I think the sample size is more than enough now to pronounce Michael an international sensation, obviously worthy of the new nickname, Michael the Pod Pina. Congrats on your well-deserved and earned success. Look at Kyle just out here as the arbiter for the podcast. I love it. Now he writes, since we're all locked inside and my kid is asleep, I finally found the free time needed to do my part for the podcast and write to you guys. First of all, I'm not sure if it's too soon for this question, but is Houston Rockets GM Daryl Morey off the hook now for the whole China thing? I'm sure Tillman Fertitta won't forget about it, um, but it feels like the average NBA fan will be quick to forget Maury's Twitter faux pas given the wake of uh, the coronavirus. So he goes on to write, uh, Michael, that the financial damage here, you know, into the hundreds of millions of dollars by the NBA schedule, uh, suspended schedule is going to basically overshadow anything that Maury did in terms of, you know, increasing tension in the relations uh, between the NBA and China and potentially, you know, in some cases, getting games off the television there, getting merchandise out of stores there. And so basically, uh, Maury has somehow uh, been given a, a lifeline, so to speak. Are you with Kyle on his theory? Does it seem like we've all moved on to the bigger, darker crisis and, uh, you know, the, the whole Hong Kong controversy, which kind of occupied so much attention back in October, is now completely a forgotten thing of the past? Yeah, I mean, I did not I have not thought about Daryl Morey's tweet 
in a very long time until you sent this email and I read it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that tweet was, you know, it was about a human rights issue that will matter once again, once the world sort of reacclimates itself to a post-coronavirus existence, whatever that looks like. But so far as it matters to the NBA, you know, outside of the financial ramifications, which feel very short term relative to what we're dealing with right now, I mean, the NBA lost... I think Adam Silver threw out, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars because of that tweet and China not playing the games. But right now, compared to coronavirus and how the league is, you know, essentially not functioning, that just feels like a grain of sand. Yeah, it really does. I mean, I think that Kyle makes an excellent point here. I'm sure that's not where Daryl Morey's mind went, by the way. I don't think he's like breathing some big sigh of relief because... I mean, look at their moves. Everything was geared towards trying to compete in this year's playoffs. And if there's no playoffs, like that's a lot of hard work, long-term planning, huge amount of risk, you know, taking on in terms of the Westbrook deal and, and trading your future picks and everything else. So it's not like anyone here is breathing a sigh of relief. I think that needs to be kind of made very clear. And we're not trying to diminish in any way. Uh, you know, the the pro-democracy ideas of people over there in Hong Kong are saying, oh, yeah, you're not as big of a deal as a disease. I mean, that's not kind of the point here. But I think when you're saying just sort of realistically, how does the NBA go forward from a financial standpoint? I mean, this suspended schedule is going to be monstrous. Uh, Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN reported that the the owners extended their credit line so they can sort of uh, you know handle the repercussions here in the short term. A lot of owners are pledging uh, to take care of the arena workers, uh, you know, during this stoppage as well. Um, but what you're going to see is a complete reversal from a financial standpoint of what we've looked at for basically the last 30 uh, years. I mean, with one or two exceptions, the salary cap has risen every year since the 1980s. The NBA has kind of been in that uh, boom growth mode basically the whole way. There's a few hiccups here, but usually it was you know, a matter of the cap going down by, you know, a million or two dollars. I mean, nothing big, right? You're looking at a situation where if it is a $500 million hit, I mean, that's going to spread out to the biggest salary cap drop in NBA history, depending on how it uh, it plays out. And so they're going to have a lot of uh, mechanical stuff to work through in terms of, okay, well, where does the luxury tax line go? Are you still going to charge all these teams uh, luxury tax if they didn't realize that there was going to be this huge uh, you know, hit to the the NBA's economy. You look at the free agent market for uh, this summer. I mean, it wasn't a very star-studded group, but there's going to be basically no money available for anybody to really get paid. You're probably going to have to see a lot of one-year deals. So people just kind of roll it over and hope the economy recovers down the road. Um, and you're going to see teams that thought they were outside the luxury tax and really have never paid the luxury tax now potentially uh, in luxury tax territory, and they're not going to be happy about that. And it's going to be very difficult for them to shed salary because everybody else is going to be sort of geared up too. So this is a, a next step thing to just kind of keep in mind as a basketball fan is like, we saw how much a big rise in the salary cap could change everything with the Golden State Warriors, right? Uh, when that cap spiked, they were able to get Kevin Durant and it set the tone for the NBA for the next three years or four years, right? Uh, a similar thing could happen if we see a major drop in the salary cap where, uh, you know, maybe superstar tandems are, ha you know, need to be broken up. You know, maybe teams have to dump long-term salaries. Uh, you know, it, it could just have that type of impact and it could really set the course for the league uh, for the sort of the next chapter here as we go forward. So just a little bit of like, you know, dark foreshadowing 
to think about um, when you're you know trying to celebrate the fact that Daryl Morey is is no longer public enemy number one. But Michael, this does bring me to a topic that you wrote about uh, for SB Nation, which is how stories have changed, right? Uh, because of the suspended schedule, and everybody is impacted. Every player, every team, every coach. Um, every executive. Some of these guys were in contract years. Some of these guys are kind of in their last years. If they're executives and coaches, you know, they're lame duck years, so to speak. And everything winds up getting uh, decided in the playoffs, right? That's where all the narratives, uh, you know, are either born or die, right? So when you were sort of looking at this landscape, I believe you sort of ranked them, right? Or you, you picked out some of your your the biggest ones, the ones that were most meaningful. Uh, what was your kind of takeaway as you went through that process? Yeah, I mean, as you said, Ben, the playoffs are, you know, that's where different segments of the NBA really learn so much about themselves. And even though it's a small sample size, postseason results drive the most impactful decisions from both players who are pending free agents and the teams that see what's working and what needs to change. So without that to go off of uh, you know, we're not pausing everything. You know, contracts are still kind of going to roll over as they normally would. So just they lose time. They lose valuable access to information, key information that really motivates their decision-making process. So, yeah, I didn't necessarily rank the teams. I just kind of looked at a few that were headed to the playoffs and also the Golden State Warriors because I think we can agree, despite my criticisms or faux criticisms of Steph Curry, that they will be a relevant organization for wait, the foreseeable wait. future. Do you mean do you mean your <laughs> rap beef with Steph Curry that's been ongoing and stretching into its fourth year after you said he was in decline where he's like barely out of his uh, unanimous MVP season? That beef, Michael? That's exactly the one I'm referring to, yes. Um, so <laughs> this one way beef that we have, uh, that is non-existent. Um, so yeah, I just looked at the, 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 the landscape, as you said, with the, the different teams that, you know, are more tethered to the present, I think, than some of the other ones that are built for the future that are young, that will be less impacted by the loss of a postseason. And we touched on this a little bit in our last episode and it kind of sparked the idea for me to write the piece, um, but, I mean, the, the, at the top of the, the charts here for me, and the first team that I wanted to actually sit down and write about were the Milwaukee Bucks, which, you know, they have been this model of relative stability over the last few seasons. They have Giannis, they have Chris Middleton, uh, who they just signed to a long-term contract. And despite losing Malcolm Brogdon, they have some of the best continuity among all of the contenders. So, in you know, I'm writing this other piece that should come out at some point about uh, chemistry throughout the league. And in talking to a lot of different executives and coaches and players, everyone was marveling at the consistency in terms of style of play and in terms of familiarity that the Milwaukee Bucks have had relative to some of the other uh, contending teams and that how that gives them such an advantage. So I think with them, if you just don't play the playoffs or you have this really weird, maybe a single elimination style, I don't know what the playoffs are going to look like this year, but if they disappoint or they go out early or they don't even get to compete, Giannis Antetokounmpo loses a very valuable sample size for himself as he kind of assesses whether or not he wants to stay. And if the Milwaukee Bucks offer him the Supermax, which they will, I assume, uh, and he says no, I think that the fallout from that is just going to be 
you know, it's not on a coronavirus level, but it is going to just the, the domino effect of that will be felt by a lot of other teams throughout the league. Well, I appreciate that, you know, as the the head of Giannis Inc., you know, I appreciate you putting on the same level as a pandemic in terms of uh, world <laughs> severity and, and import, because certainly that's how I view him. Um, there is no question about it. Um, there was bubbling up as long ago as last year's playoffs, this idea that if he didn't make the finals that year or the following year, that that was going to kind of trigger him to maybe look elsewhere, right? If they made the finals, everything was cool. He would kind of stick with the plan in Milwaukee. And this is something that he has never discussed. It's something that he always, uh, you know, brushes off. And the the Milwaukee community, of course, is rightfully very touchy about all this stuff because they feel like, oh, the, the national media is coming to steal their guy, right? But it was this general sense, and it goes all the way back to Jordan and other guys, where you want to be able to show progress, Right. LeBron leaves Cleveland in 2010 because there's not that progress because he keeps running into the Boston wall. Um, You know, Jordan running into the Pistons wall over and over again. I mean, if he never breaks through at some point, you throw your hands up, right? Um, And I think that that would be the concern, uh, you know, from the Bucs standpoint. And this was a golden opportunity to make the finals and to make your full case to Giannis that you have the premier organization in the Eastern Conference, a perfect supporting cast that complements him around, you know, around him, a coach who can actually get him over the top. Like if they make the finals, there's validation on so many different levels of that organization, including the front office, who's actually been pretty darn aggressive and creative in constructing the, the supporting cast. It's not like they're star-studded, but they've gotten a lot of pretty nice pieces there to help them out. So... Now all of that validation is hanging, and for sure it puts them into a really tricky situation. I'm going to ask you this, though, Michael. I think that usually what would happen if they offer him the Supermax and he doesn't take it, there would be a desire from some executives to trade him instantly when his value is the highest, right? And it's really just hard to imagine them having approached it that way. But now when you have the coronavirus situation, maybe it wipes out this year, you come into next season... Let's say he doesn't take the the supermax. Are you more liable to just play out next year and hope that your cultural and uh, everything that you've done to build around him just continues to stay on the right path, and that you can kind of uh, you know sell him on staying and, and not worry so much about the the possibility that he flees for nothing? Like, are you more likely to take that risk because of this? Or are you more likely to get conservative and say, you know what, this was something that was out of our control, but we can't be in a situation where Giannis leaves next summer for nothing. We've got to make a move. Like, is there an impact either way on your decision making if you were the Bucks GM? I think almost regardless, you have to roll the dice and you have to hold on to him and hope that you can win the championship next season with him and that that motivates him to re-sign with you because, like, I don't know what kind of trade package John Horse would need to see to move Giannis like does one even exist <laughs> like what is what does that even look like is like I, I I can't fathom it and then you also have to factor in uh you know any team that would be trying to acquire Giannis is getting him on the last year of his deal and so there's great risk there as we just saw with the Toronto Raptors who did win the championship but they lost Kawhi Leonard so how about this Michael Oklahoma City offers every pick it got for Paul George and Russell Westbrook for Giannis, and then there's salary cap match. Would you do it? Um, <laughs> I, I actually don't think that I would. 
I think that... Boy, so you're gonna your your starting price for Giannis is seven first every draft picks. Pick. Yeah, every <laughs> draft pick uh in the foreseeable future. I mean Look, like this organization is so like it's it everything is reliant on him. I mean, there's a lot of momentum, uh, the money that has been funneled in through the building of a new practice facility. Uh, uh, the downtown area is I have not been to Milwaukee, but I can imagine that it is uh, in a much different condition than it was five years ago because of Giannis and because of the success that they've had with restaurants and bars and that sort of thing. Like, you can't just move him and then be like, we're we're now rebuilding. I think that it would be just a disastrous overnight change for everyone in that organization. No, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, I think that's probably why there's so much denial and frustration there locally when people do try to, you know, talk about these ideas because, you know, the Bucks without Giannis, it's like they're, you know, it's almost uh, impossible to imagine. It's like the post-Jordan Bulls. Like, you know, that's that's a pretty rough scene. The one thing about downtown Milwaukee, though, Michael, they got the fastest Postmates in the country, um, bottom line. I mean, I, I'm telling you, like, you order, <laughs> it's it's at your hotel in, like, four minutes. Like, I've never seen anything like it. So just, you know, shout out to Milwaukee. That was, like, my major takeaway from going there during the Eastern Conference Finals last year. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Give me a couple of your other, um, you know, your biggest narrative teams that you're looking at being impacted here by the coronavirus. Yeah, so the one that I wrote about that that, I, that was next that most intrigued me in writing the piece was the Brooklyn Nets. And I started writing about them before we learned that four of their players tested positive for COVID-19, uh, and one of them being Kevin Durant. And Kevin Durant's health is so tied to the short and long-term success of the organization. So, you know, when I set out to write it, it was basically like, if basketball does come back in July or, or, or August or whenever it comes back, I, you know, Rich Kleiman, uh, Kevin Durant's business partner, said that him playing in the playoffs this year was not something that they even discussed. And it was very, I believe he said it was not realistic to expect. And that is understandable for him to say publicly in the middle of March. I personally have a very, very difficult time seeing. Kevin Durant sitting healthy on the sidelines if the Brooklyn Nets are in the playoffs, which they probably will be. Okay, um, so stop right here. First thing you're going to do is try to take over the open floor for me. 
It sounds to me like that you have a hostile takeover of 35 Ventures happening right now, Michael. You're going to tell <laughs> Rich Kleiman and Kevin Durant what Kevin Durant's going to do if they bring the season back in August. You're predicting and guaranteeing right now Kevin Durant's going to be in the playoffs trying to lead the Nets to a title. Is that what I'm hearing? I am guaranteeing it. I mean, it, this guy, he's all about <laughs> basketball. He's all about basketball. So it's like he has not played since he tore his Achilles in the finals last year. He's He's on the court right now. There's clips of him in in gyms just dunking on people doing no, ridiculous I mean, crossovers like he's I, if he's physically able to play which uh you know he is currently has coronavirus so you know thinking yeah. about right well, michael, now is just michael that doesn't matter i mean he could have two ivs in his arm he could be in a wheelchair from this thing he's the best player the nets got it's not even close put a blindfold on him he's the best player <laughs> the nets got yeah no i hear you um don't you think though he might be such a big deal from a financial perspective. There's so many people, Nike and and everyone else, who's concerned about his health potentially. That it is kind of like a a full shutdown on him until next season. Like, isn't that possible? Like, he's not your typical guy coming back from an Achilles. It's not like a Wesley Matthews. Like, there's so much at stake, right? There can't be another injury here. Do you want to throw him back into that charge playoff atmosphere? That's my question. I mean, I I totally get that concern and if i were nike i would be pretty concerned because obviously if he re-aggravates that that injury or if he tears his other achilles i don't even know like it, it would be just absolutely devastating for him and for the franchise but if he's 100 percent healthy and you're telling him that he cannot play and he's watching his teammates get decimated by a toronto raptors team that with him on the court playing you know 30 minutes a night they would have a shot to defeat you're telling him he can't play, and then all of a sudden, oh, by the way, like you're actually not going to be able to play until Christmas when the next season begins, or or 2021 when the next season begins. I just have a really difficult time imagining him being okay with that. And also, like we should consider the fact that these guys aren't going to be around forever. Uh, and we we've talked about the gap year with the Nets all season long and how uh, embarrassing it has been. If they're able to somewhat salvage it by giving Duran a chance to just impact games at a degree that basically only he can right now. I mean, there's a couple other guys in the league, but he is such a ridiculous force. And the way that he would just, you know, let the dominoes kind of fall in line on that team, uh, I, I just I think he would play. I really do. And I think it would be really, really impactful to that team. Can I ask you a question? I'm sure you saw the um, mayor of New York City, uh, de Blasio, kind of took some shots at the Nets after they tested their players. He he said something along the lines of, uh, you know, tests shouldn't be for the wealthy. They should be for the sick. And, um, of course, there was a debate over should all the Utah Jazz, you know, 58 tests have gone to them from the public supply there in Oklahoma uh, rather than – uh, you know, potentially other people who were kind of trying to go into hospitals saying that they had symptoms and maybe weren't quite able to get the same test. Now, of course, the Nets have clarified that they purchased their uh, tests from a private company, right? So it wasn't a situation where they're taking up public resources. But what did you make of de Blasio's tweet kind of going at the Nets? And, and what did you make of, of just that round of the news here where the the NBA's toll of of coronavirus positive tests jumped from three to seven uh, after four nets tested positive. This is a really polarizing 
issue, right? Like, uh, on one hand, testing players, I, I mean, everyone is, a, at the end of the day, everyone is a person here. And if there is any fear that you are positive, you would want to know, regardless of whether or not you're a millionaire or uh, you just were laid off from your job. Um, so I think, you know, I look at the Los Angeles Lakers, a team that has is testing everybody, I believe, even though there is no real concern that any of them have it. No one is showing symptoms, I believe, is what I read most recently. And you weigh that against uh, the Golden State Warriors and their decision not to test everybody in the organization and all the players. Uh, and it's kind of jarring because they publicly, the Warriors have publicly stated that, you know, they believe that the tests are for people who need them more than they do. And, you know, there's a soccer team in, in Europe that has passed on the opportunity to take tests with all their players because they said the same thing that the Warriors did. So I think it's a really complicated issue. And at the end of the day, like, if Rudy Gobert never was given the test, where are we as a society right now? Are we even further delayed in responding to this thing than we we have been? Because, you know, uh, such a public figure in the country has tested positive. So I think that it's there's a lot of different variables here and a lot of different elements that make it really complicated. And everyone's just kind of handling it as they, as they think is best. Yeah, I think the main takeaway here is like, NBA players are an awfully easy target, right? Uh, they're a big target, and they're not going to be engendering much sympathy, but they're not the problem. The problem is there's not enough tests, right? So yeah, 100%, 100%. Of course, we're upset about who has better access than we do. It's just like if you're on an airplane, you're looking up at the people in first class thinking, God, screw those guys. Like, you know, this is just, <laughs> like, it bothers me to no end, right? But when you get upgraded to first class, you're not looking back and thinking about, oh, hey, that guy in row 23, his life sucks. You know, it's just, this is like the nature of access. I think President Trump, I mean, he came out, his comment was like, well, isn't this just basically life? You know, some people have access to stuff and some people don't. And I think um, it was cold and bitter <laughs> words from him. Uh, but I think ultimately, like, fairly representative of how the United States works. And that's unfortunate. To fix that, we're not going to take 20 tests away from the Nets and say, sorry, guys, even though some of you actually tested positive and we're showing symptoms, you don't get to have the test. You have to be a normal person. To fix that, we make like 35 million tests, right? We ramp up the manufacturing and everybody gets access to a test as quickly as possible. That's the solution. And so I, I especially think for a politician in such a high profile position, man, I don't know. Was that the right message to be sending? Um, or should the message have been more focused on how can we kind of go forward and uh, increase access for everyone? I talked to uh, a public health expert uh, who used to be in the Obama administration yesterday for a story I was working on on this subject about testing. And he said, look, do not get caught up in the back and forth about slamming NBA players and everything else. The NBA needs to realize this is a great opportunity for them to be evangelists. Get out there on the public service announcements. Make sure that you get the message through to everybody who's still going out to the beach and still going out to the clubs and still going out to the bars about what the proper... Um, you know, methods of controlling the spread of this disease are wash your hands, social distancing and everything else. And hopefully you can kind of spin uh, a negative PR situation into a positive for everybody, not just for yourself. And he was actually challenging these guys who tested positive. Look, 
it's not enough to just say, hey, I tested positive. It's about taking the next step as a leader and trying to encourage proper behavior and kind of protecting society at large. I thought personally that was just a powerful message from him. And so I thought I would pass it on here. But again, you know, I'm not going to defend NBA players on every single thing, right? This is one where I do feel like they're being unfairly attacked. uh, And I think it's a little bit unfortunate. All right, Michael, let's, uh, let's get back on track here. Huh? Uh, What other narratives you got for me? Uh, There's a few. I mean, I I guess we should go to kind of my pet team that I've discussed here many, many times, uh, uh, the Houston Rockets, um, a team that I infamously have selected as the favorite to win the NBA championship. And uh, I don't want to come off as callous in this analysis, uh, but when I look at the layoff uh, and I kind of combine it with the playing style that the Rockets have deployed since the trade deadline and just how they've, you know, decided to play this physically taxing style of basketball with uh, a lot of smaller players. I kind of feel like if you give them a few months of rest and relaxation and then pick it up with the, the, the style of play that they were doing with PJ Tucker, who had not missed a game up until the season was postponed. Uh, you know, James Harden does not take nights off. Russell Westbrook does not play in back-to-backs, but he is, uh, I mean, just goes balls to the wall in every single possession. If you give those guys some time off to kind of get off their feet a little bit, I think that they have a leg up on the competition. Is that, is that, do you agree with that? Uh, now you're just trying to do confirmation by stuff, Michael. <laughs> it's like, all right, how can I, you're one of these people who's trying to spin a tragedy for his own personal benefit. I see you. It's shameless, man. Come on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not really buying what you're selling. Um, because I worry some of these guys might not be staying in shape, man. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, you have any guys on that team who you're a little bit concerned about what their uh, hiatus habits might be? Oh, you I mean, talk about confirming your own biases. Jeez Louise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I could see that. I could see that, you know, carrying over to any team in the league right now. I mean, there's a real concern with some of these guys. Uh, you know, I read this story that was really interesting about Kyle Korver talking about how when there was the lockout in 2011, what he did to stay in shape and how he knew what was too much and what was too little. And he was at P3 in Santa Barbara. That's where he spent his time. And right now, you can't go to P3 in Santa Barbara. It's shut down. So all these guys are kind of, they're not entirely on their own, obviously. But, I mean, we are seeing some young players post uh, you know, videos on TikTok of themselves dressed up in their uniforms, just kind of running around their apartments. And you do wonder uh, what exactly they are doing to stay in shape and how they're staying in shape, because this thing is, I mean, it, it totally disrupts routine in terms of uh, physical activity. So I, I and access. So it, it, I think it's going to be kind of uniformly affecting everybody at the same time, don't you think? You don't think TikTok is a sufficient uh, strategy to keep yourself ready for a, a spa ball spread five look if you're the uh, Houston Rockets? In other words, you want to see Harden and P.J. Tucker do a little bit more than the uh, the Macarena dances online? <laughs> Maybe just a little bit, yeah. That would no, be nice. No, I hear you, man. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think that 
to a certain degree, whenever we have these conversations, I still find myself thinking like, are we just clinging to completely false hope, right? Like there's been some discussion about, hey, this entire thing could take 18 months now to completely unravel. Um, and if that's the case, how are we salvaging games in June, right? Like, I mean, that seems fairly unrealistic. Um, and it hasn't gotten to that point quite yet. And of course, all these estimates are subject to a million variables that change constantly. But um, it is hard for me to kind of like ramp up my energy on the like, who, let's body fat test all these different players from across the country and, you know, see what they're going to be like in June. Uh, because I do just kind of question, hey, are we even going to be back playing at that point? Hey, Michael, let's move forward uh, to a couple other questions we got here. And we got questions from around the world. Uh, but Kane writes in, he goes, first of all, thank you for continuing with the show in these strange times. I'm in the UK and I usually listen to the podcast with my headphones at work, but now I am one of many who's working from home so I can have the volume all the way up, a positive amongst the many negatives. Thanks, Kane, for that. We're glad to be, you know, we could actually scream right now if you wanted to test your speakers. Um, he goes, I think the idea of history podcasts about basketball would be great. I would love to hear who your favorite players ever were, your favorite dunks, your favorite games. And also, I'm a new fan, so it would be great to hear about some great historical seasons from the past. So, Michael, I'm sure we're going to have plenty of time to dive into our different favorites. But I did want to take up that last one he mentioned, the, the idea of seasons. When you think back on like the classic season of your childhood, or even maybe from early in your writing career... Is there one season that just kind of like stuck with you? Or maybe, you know, I think a lot of times it winds up being the final series that defines the season, right? Is there one that, that jumps out to you as sort of among your favorites? Yeah, there there is. Um, you know, I, I think looking back for me and during my childhood, just because of how old I am, I think the NBA was kind of not in the greatest place from you know, the formative years of me becoming a fan from, I guess, the late 90s to the end of the last decade. You had the Malice at the Palace, the the rock fight style of play, the San wait, Antonio Spurs. Michael, how old are you? Like 20 years old? Come on, Michael. You weren't watching, <laughs> really. you, you weren't watching the MJ mid-90s stuff? You just weren't into it yet? Dude, I, I'm I'm not revealing my age on the pod, but it's th- th- those memories are very fleeting. Let's just say. Um, well, we're gonna do everything we can on open floor to re- <laughs> reconjure those up. We can like maybe plant some memories into your brain for you because that is a rough time period to kind of start off. It's in, it's incredibly uh, terrible, especially if you grew up, you know, trying to love the Boston Celtics as I did growing up outside of Boston, but. Um, I wanted to shout out the 2005-2006 season. Um, I was a freshman in college, and so I guess everyone could just do the math there and figure out how old I am. And I, I still remember there's one series from that um, that postseason. I mean, the regular season was uh, obviously had its classic moments. You had Kobe's 81-point game. You had... Uh, I think that was Chris Paul's rookie season. LeBron was kind of establishing himself as a 21-year-old MVP candidate. It felt like the league was kind of shifting in a really interesting way. And one playoff series in particular that has kind of been caught in my memory is uh, the second-round seven-game series between the Phoenix Suns and the Los Angeles Clippers. And I can still remember... uh, you know, sitting in my girlfriend's dorm room at the time and watching game five of that series, which 
I don't really know why it sticks out in my head and why I remember it so much, but it went into double overtime. Daniel Ewing, Ewing had a foul to give. He let Raja Bell hit a corner three with a second left to send it into that double overtime, second overtime. And uh, I don't I, like. I, I'm sure you remembered the series that I'm talking about. It was great theater. Um, I don't know why it sticks out, but you go from that to uh, obviously the, the 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 seven seconds or less, and what we were watching with that, and not really understanding it in real time, but being transfixed by it nonetheless. And uh, the champion that season, which was the, the Miami Heat and Dwayne Wade, who was also in his third year and becoming this phenomenon, and uh, so that season for me just kind of stands out as this really, I don't want to call it an oasis because there were some good moments before and after in particular, but it was it was just an awesome, awesome NBA season. Yeah, that's fascinating. That was right before I started covering the NBA. I started in 2007. So for me, that's actually a little bit of a down period. Um you know, so I remember being like really, really into the NBA throughout the 90s as a kid because the Blazers were really good. I was in Portland. It was peak of Jordan mania. I was obsessed with Jordan. Um, then I went to college basically uh, uh, in 2001, and there was no basketball team uh, in Baltimore, and like the the Wizards weren't worth getting on the train for, if that makes sense. So um, I didn't really have that direct, like, you know, that personal touch. I did go up and see Iverson a couple of times, but I think if there was any swoon period of my basketball fandom, it was like 01 to 05, 06, like kind of right in the, the time period you're describing, almost like when you fell in love with the game. So that's kind of interesting uh, role reversals there. Um, but when I was thinking about this question, I really go back to when I first started getting into the game, and I know the emailer was describing how he's a new fan. And for me, like being a basketball fan and just having that first impression be like the early three-peat years for Michael, where he gets to the finals. And again, we didn't have league pass. We didn't have access to all the games. So pretty much your main touch point was the finals. And that first year, we all know Michael's been trying so hard. I mean, he's singularly focused, and he's got to go up against Magic, kind of this mythic end of the dynasty Lakers team. Is he going to be able to do it? He goes up with the right hand, double clutches to the left hand, and you watch that move in slow motion, and Marv Albert's saying, spectacular move. And as a kid, you just, I mean, that's where you think he's a superhero. I mean, that's where those feelings get kind of birthed across the country. It's like, who else could even do that or conceive of it? let alone executing it in a finals game. You fast forward to that next year, six three-pointers, he's shrugging to the sidelines, you know, just completely shattering the entire state of Oregon uh, with that, uh, you know, first half explosion in the finals against the Blazers. Um, That's something I'll I'll never forget. I mean, I, I know a lot of hearts were broken. I mean, a lot of people went to that series in Portland thinking, hey, you know, this guy Clyde, he's on Mike's level. Like, that's a real debate. Um, and it didn't really work out that way. Ben, uh, and ben, then ben, I think- ben, 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 can I, can I cut you off real quick and just Please. ask a quick question? So one, I have, I have two real quick points. F- number one is I, I do think Michael Jordan is the best player ever. That reverse layup against the Lakers is the most overrated moments in NBA history. I'm sorry, but just he had the open, like the layup was right there. He did not need to switch hands, Ben. It just didn't need to happen. Do you want to rebut that point or you're trying to support that? Come on. If geniuses (laughs) always stuck to the script, if everybody just did the most basic right-handed layup 
all the time? Would we ever have ins- inspirational art? <laughs> I think your heart might be dead, Michael. I think this corona <laughs> might have gotten and polluted your brain, bro. What are you talking about? The most overrated moment in the NBA Finals. Are you crazy? Okay, so, so, so I knew that that would spark some some fire in you. Uh, my second point is a legitimate question. So you're growing up in Portland. You see Michael Jordan decimate your hometown team. Why did you then fall in love with Michael Jordan? Wouldn't that kind of set you on a different path where he is like public enemy number one for you? No, it goes the other way. I was already a Jordan stand before that series. So it was like, we're watching Michael just mow down who's ever there. And if it happens to be the Blazers, (laughs) you know, sorry, it's the Blazers. I really enjoyed um, that Blazers team, the Rip City team. I mean, they were so great in the community. And I know there's a lot of Oregonians who listen to this, but the idea that they had the Franz basketball cards, Franz bread, would put the cards in the loaves of bread. You'd get them from the store. The team would go to the local grocery store, Fred Meyer, and do autograph signings. Guys like Kevin Duckworth and Jerome Kersey were so good in the community. Terry Porter. Um, that is exactly how a small market team should operate. You know that, and it was it helped that they had a lot of good guys and great characters. You know, Cliff Robinson. Uh, they used to make Dairy Queen glasses locally that would like screen print these great um, caricatures of all the players and you could collect the glasses. I mean, there were so many touch points for young fans during that era. It's exactly how it should be. And a lot of organizations get it from a merchandising standpoint, from a holding public events standpoint around the league. And I just think that they were a model uh, kind of ahead of their time. And it helped that they were on a streak of making the playoffs like 20 years in a row at that point. So there was a sustained level of success and relevance. They weren't always going deep in the playoffs, but they mattered. And so they certainly captured a lot of, uh, you know, local fans' hearts. But at the same time, man, like I grew up in Beaverton, Oregon, which is like home to Nike. Look, I got the MJ stuff pumped into my bloodstream <laughs> from a very early age. Uh, you know, as in sixth grade, uh, my dad wrote me a, a doctor's note. He took me to a Nike shareholder meeting. I just got the swoosh stuff just like indoctrinated into me, right? So it was always Mike first. And um, yeah, there were some mixed feelings there when you're watching the Blazers lose in such a kind of gutting fashion. And, and they had had so many chances. And I think that was their best one. But, uh, you know, certainly I wasn't, you know, I wasn't upset. And uh, the third title, though, from that three-peat was also spectacular, Michael. I mean, that final series against the Suns, it has the game winner near the end, but it also has just amazing moments from Charles Barkley. You get a, a real duel. There's overtimes in that series. Mike has to step it up to another level. And I'll never forget that finals because randomly, my family, we had moved to Israel for that season for my dad's job. And we came back and we were staying in a rental house. It wasn't even our real house. And the whole thing was just kind of like up in the air and nobody was happy in the rental house. And it's just like, uh, what are we doing here? And it was all about, okay, well, Michael's going to kind of salvage this situation, right? Like he's going to be the person who like cuts through all this annoying stuff and, uh, you know, delivers. And they go down in that series where I guess he loses a game. They don't close it out and they have to go back to Phoenix and after that loss, I locked myself in a closet and I was like basically distraught. <laughs> I was like, Michael can't lose. He's already won two. How is he going to lose another one? This is completely impossible. Like really, really distraught as a kid. And my dad had to kind of like, you know, slowly tap on the closet and say like, don't worry. Michael always wins. He will win this series. It's going to be okay. And he slowly uh, coaxes me out of the closet. And sure enough, 
you know, Michael delivered again uh, the three-peat. And then he retired and went to go play baseball, which we're going to leave that part of the story out. But (laughs) (laughs) fabulous childhood memory. And and I really appreciate this question in terms of like the favorite seasons. If I had to pick one of those, um, I would actually say... Kane, the fa- my favorite was that that uh, Bulls Sun series. If you can watch highlights from YouTube, man, that that was a special special series. That was a great finals. Yeah, I agree. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I was what barely born at that point. Uh, I'm just gonna keep throwing my the myst- the mystery of my my age out there. But I've seen all the highlights. That's a great series. Uh, one that uh, you know Charles Barkley who won the MVP that season. Um, and there's just so many different stories about their relationship at that time. Charles and and, and MJ kind of battling to be who, to see who is the best player in the league at that point. It's just, it's really a fascinating time. Yeah, Barkley has a great story about how he would always tell his daughter that he was the best player in the league. He felt like the best player in the league um, going into that series. And then after game one, Jordan put up some ungodly stat line on him and he, and he came home and was like, no, actually Michael's the best. <laughs> he, just, like, he, he was uh, he was a quick convert. Uh, we got another question from Liam in Scotland. He writes, dear Ben and in all capital letters, the pod. This is what I mean, Michael. It's going to go to your head now that you've got this nickname. He writes, first off, massively appreciating the levity and a welcome distraction in these uncertain times. Also wishing Michael all the safety in the world. I'm particularly enjoying what I can only assume is his cabin fever style energy that he's bringing. You know, I was enjoying it too, Michael, until you went after the spectacular move. I mean, that was just crazy and reckless. Um, But, you know, that's neither here nor there. He actually (laughs) recommended, Liam does, a website. Uh, that's called This Date in the NBA, and it's official NBA website. And they tell you all these different things that happen um, on various dates. And coincidentally, we are taping this on March 19th. And he he points out that March 19th, 1995, was Michael Jordan's return to the court after his uh, hiatus uh, from, uh, due to baseball and, and kind of resting up and recuperating after that first three-peat we just described. So coincidentally, another Michael Jordan question. I swear they're not going to all be Michael Jordan questions, but I guess, um, Michael, maybe you were a little bit young to remember this. Do you have any memories of Jordan's comeback um, season? You know, obviously he's wearing the 45. Uh, you know, he, he sends in that famous fax that everybody likes to talk about, the I'm back fax. I mean, do you have any other... Uh, memories or anything that stuck with you about that uh, particular chapter of American history? <laughs> particular chapter. Um, I, I I was racking my brain for this because I, I do remember where I was when I first heard about the facts and and kind of wasn't able to process the implications and why it was so meaningful, but. I remember being in school and we used to have televisions um, in every classroom that were not ever like on like ESPN or anything like that. They would all just strictly be for educational purposes. And like my- Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. <laughs> sure. Bingo. Blue's Clues. Um, oh, I, Blue's Clues. All right. Yeah. So we, we, we had the televisions and my teacher, big NBA fan, uh, changed the channel to, <laughs> to I guess it was the local news at that point, or it might have been ESPN, I can't really recall. And he was just transfixed by 
the, the news about the facts and he wanted to know everything about it. And this was pre-internet, of course. So he's just staring at the television, not really teaching us anything at that time. And I'm going up to him being like, what is going on? And he's just like, this is one of the biggest days in the history of sports. And he's trying to explain it to me. And so I do have that memory in my head, but I I'm, I was too young to really like process it and understand just how meaningful it was, unfortunately. Yeah, so I remember being so thrown off by the 45 jersey because, again, I was so indoctrinated into this like uh, cult of 23. You know, I had a million Jordan sneakers, the jerseys and everything else. And it's like, what do you mean he's going to have a different number? Like, I never wrap my mind around it. <laughs> and so, like, a lot of people thought it was cool. And, of course, the NBA thought it was just, like, absolutely amazing, right? Because they're going to be selling millions of jerseys uh, overnight with the new number. But for me, it was like very, very disorienting, right? I do think that that season winds up getting short shrift historically just because um, his his myth is like 6-0 in the finals. No one ever beat this guy in his prime. And that's not true. Like the Orlando Magic did eliminate, um, you know, the Chicago Bulls from that year. And when you're actually looking at like Shaquille O'Neal and where he stands in history, I feel like everybody remembers the three-peat, obviously, with Kobe and then uh, the kind of the, the crowning, uh, you know, finals win with Dwayne Wade. But it is kind of a big feather in Shaq's cap that he's like the one great who actually beat Mike during the 90s in the playoffs. And of course, it comes with the asterisk of, okay, well, he was, you know, he didn't play the whole season. Everybody's going to give Jordan every excuse in the book, you know, and give him the benefit of the doubt. But I do think it's an underrated aspect of the Shaquille O'Neal legend that like he was able to kind of prevail in a head-to-head matchup against Jordan when basically no one else did. Of course, he winds up losing in the finals uh, to Akeem and, and the Rockets, and so he doesn't really have the total crowning achievement. But I guess that's sort of what I remembered about that that Jordan comeback was how disappointed I was that he wasn't actually invincible, right? And then how quick everybody was to rally around the idea of Jordan's invincibility and give him a lot of excuses. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, no, yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't think he ever got held accountable for that loss, really. No, I mean, he was completely dominated by Nick Anderson and, and Dennis Scott. And we don't really talk about that, Ben, do we? Well, come on, dominated? <laughs> you're going way too far with the Jordan hate here. I think, you know, you're you're feeling yourself, but we're going to have to rein you back in. If you're going to take shots at the legend like this, come on, Michael. No, I, I actually remember loving Michael Jordan and uh, the, wanting the flu game shoes more than anything in the whole world, and my mom being so flustered by how expensive they were, knowing that I would outgrow them in like a week, and she was right. But uh, I do own a pair today of the uh, of the flu games, which are probably the best sneaker of all time. And I just like don't even wear them that much out of respect. So I hope that makes up for me and my slanderous comments from before. It's the great thing about Jordans, but also about growing old is you can make all of your childhood dreams come true. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, just eventually you get enough money. You know, those 12s, though, they're heavy, Michael. They're not too heavy for you. Like that's they're, why they're I, that's partially of, why I do not wear them. Yeah, yeah. They're they're kind of like Timberlands, right? I mean, they're, they're better chunky. looking Timberlands, yeah. but yeah. That, honestly, it adds to the myth. 
How he was able to take down Stockton and Malone with 35-pound weights on his feet, I will never know, <laughs> especially when he was sick. I mean, personally, I would have been using low tops, but, you know, Michael was a different cat. Um, all right, let's move on to some more questions. Hopefully, you'll be a little saner as we continue to go. This was a uh, just a personal take from Mate um, in Croatia. He writes, I was supposed to come to the United States on a 13-day business and pleasure trip. During that trip, I had plans to see two NBA games, the Warriors at the Bucks and the Lakers at the Pistons. These would have been the first two live NBA games of my entire life. I had already bought the not-so-cheap tickets and everything, and the only reason why I was going to even go to Detroit was to see the game. Well, that's understandable, Mate. Completely understandable there. Uh, he said, I wanted to see Giannis and Steph and LeBron and Anthony Davis live. I had a plan to take a picture with Jordan's monument at the United Center. Imagine my disappointment when I realized two days before my planned trip that it was not going to happen. Man, so my heart just goes out for this guy. Look, I can't make this better, okay? A shout-out on the Open Floor podcast is not going to replace those memories, Mate. But I'm just going to say this. Every name that you mention will still be there once this thing's over, right? LeBron, AD, Giannis, Steph, the Michael Jordan statue, those things aren't going away anytime soon. It's just going to be a little bit before they come back. So reschedule that trip. Give yourself those brilliant memories. You'll be glad you did. Just put the whole thing on hold. And frankly, like I had some pretty big plans this summer, Michael. Like I was thinking about going to Iceland, had a couple other vacation ideas in mind. And I think the mantra we all need to work under right now is just delay, right? Postpone. There's going to be a moment for all those fun things that we want to do. And when that moment comes, it's going to be so sweet. And we're going to be appreciating it so much more because we've had it taken away from us. And so let that keep keep you going. Don't focus on the games that you missed, Mate. Focus on the games you're going to be able to see sometime down the road. Yeah, I mean, it's all about just trying to keep something in mind to look forward to. I mean, I personally had to cancel a trip to Portugal um, actually, we haven't officially canceled it, but I highly doubt it goes down um, in June with my wife. So that's just another, it's just a huge bummer, but um, we will eventually make the trip there. We just got to <clears throat> be patient. Yeah, that's right. Portugal is not canceled. Your trip to Portugal is canceled. There's a big difference, right? There so, is a big know, difference. The country will still be there. Hey, we got a really thoughtful email here from Joel. And he writes, I'm a longtime fan of the pod and a medical resident at a hospital on the West Coast where we are bracing to care for perhaps thousands more cases of coronavirus in our clinics, hospital wards, and intensive care units. I want to say thanks for using your platform to encourage listeners to do what they can to reduce transmission of coronavirus. As we've seen in China and Italy, when the virus spreads quickly, it can easily overwhelm our hospital's capacity to care for the critically ill, which puts more lives at risk. To give us in the medical community a fighting chance to provide care for all who need it, we need everyone to do their part to slow the spread of disease. Hand hygiene, social distancing, and staying home when sick are all examples of playing with a purpose in the fight against the virus. I love it. That's one of my phrases, Michael, playing with a purpose. Understand the bigger picture. See everybody around you. A brilliant application of some open floor wisdom by our emailer. And he continues... We are already facing an uphill battle, and every bit of effort helps. 
I've been a listener of Open Floor since I graduated from medical school in 2017. During the often grueling 80-hour work weeks of residency training, the MBA and Open Floor have been some of my favorite sources of entertainment. It's hard to find things to do that you enjoy when you're working as much as we do, but listening to Open Floor on my way to work has helped keep me connected to basketball, even at times when it's impossible to watch or go to NBA games. Although it's painful to lose the NBA season, I take some solace in seeing the NBA community, the sports community, and the community at large come together to make the coronavirus pandemic less painful in terms of the cost to human life. And he said, thanks again for doing your part. I appreciate this email. And I want to call on all the medical professionals out there because I've heard from some, and I know we got some longtime listeners, nurses, doctors, and everything else. Guys, if you've got um, something going on in terms of a fundraising effort, or if you've got uh, you know, some other method recommended that we're able to kind of publicize and promote on this show that will make your lives easier over the next couple of months when you're going to be dealing with, you know, the type of horror that we rarely see, you know, knock on wood, it doesn't come to that, but I'm bracing for it. Let us know. Email us openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com. We are glad to spread the word. If you've got something like that in mind, please, uh, you know, don't hesitate to reach out. Michael, I got to say, you know, we've been making fun of your ego a lot here uh, on this episode, but that one had to feel good. That email had to feel good, huh? Oh, it feels great. I mean, uh, a thanks a million to Joel and to everyone else who is doing so much more important things that we are. We're just, this is us talking about basketball, trying to create these momentary diversions for all of our listeners, but the people who are actually battling this thing on the front lines deserve all the credit in the world and they're truly saving lives. So, uh, yeah, I can't really say anything more about my personal appreciation to people like Joel and thank you for the email, Joel. And let's let them in on a little secret here too, Michael. We're the biggest winners of this podcast, right? This is our therapy session, right? Because we're dealing with stressful jobs, coming up with topics, uh, trying to track down and report stories when, uh, the entire environment of how business is done is changing and everybody's overworked and stressed out and freaking out and the market's going down and everything else. So this is an outlet for us. We're winning from this even more than the listeners. So I appreciate every listener who's emailing in to say, hey, appreciate the levity and that kind of stuff. But guys, we need it just as much as you do. And that's how we're going to get through this thing. Michael, I'm going to give you one last opportunity to kind of tee off on me. Okay. And we've been saving this email for a while and it comes from Ross. And this is going to close out the show. He writes, This evening, I found myself on YouTube watching an NBA blooper video. A Denver Nuggets blooper came on. I think maybe it was JaVale McGee making a boneheaded play of some sort. Well, Ross, that sounds about right. Uh, He says, that's not the important part. Suddenly, the video cut to a man in a suit for a couple seconds. Afterwards, I had to rewind the video. I was certain that the win connoisseur himself, the CEO of Giannis Inc., Ben Golliver had just appeared in the video. I had so many questions. Alas, upon further examination, it was actually just a clean-shaven Michael Malone. And Ross wants to know, am I the first person to make this comp? Do you guys see it at all, or am I crazy? And then what are some other good doppelganger comps that you guys have gotten? Love the show. I've been listening for a couple years now. Ross, I'm glad I'm in your YouTube dreams, first of all. Very glad. Uh, he's having visions of me, Michael, as he's watching YouTube. Um, <laughs> I'm going to let you be the, the judge here. Do I look like Michael Malone? Is that a thing? 
I I can see it. I can. And I, I mean, I'm going to turn it around on you real quick. Like, do you think that this is a compliment or an insult? Oh, I'm not going to begrudge Michael Malone's appearance. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not crazy. I would say that I get Jokic. You know, when we're talking about the Nuggets, I get Jokic a lot more than Michael Malone. And that one does kind of bother me because it looks like his nose is broken and, um, you know, obviously, like, especially to start the season, he wasn't necessarily in, in peak physical condition. Um, but I would say, like Jokic, both of us have lost considerable weight over the course of this regular season. So I'm actually going to take that as a compliment at this point. I can't ever remember being compared to Michael Malone. Certainly when I see him, I don't believe that. Uh, the one that I've gotten, though, Ross, more than any, and it was a former NBA player, is Luke Babbitt. He used to be on the Blazers. And one time I walked into the Denver Nuggets <laughs> locker room. One time I walked into the Denver Nuggets locker room back when Kenyon Martin and those guys were there. And I walked in and, you know, I was kind of pretty young and dorky, probably wearing khakis at this point. And I, I, th- I think it was Kenyon Martin, but it was one of the players. It was like, hey, Luke, what are you doing in here? This is our locker room. Get out of here. And there was a couple of profanities mixed in along the way. And I took one step into the locker room and I did a 180, just like the, <laughs> the Homer Simpson gif. And I just went right back out of that locker room. And um, I would say that's the most common doppelganger. There was years where I was compared to him. Uh, in Portland, so much so that there was a newspaper story by the Vancouver Columbian that basically the premise of the story was asking Luke Babbitt how he felt to be compared to me so constantly. And um, so that was obviously like horribly (laughs) insulting to an NBA player. So I would say that's the one that I get uh, more than Michael Malone. I don't see Michael Malone, that, that one personally, but um, Michael, tell me about your doppelganger comps. So I guess I'm going to bring this all, this whole thing full circle right now by saying that uh, friend of the pod, Fred Katz. Uh, right <laughs> hey, and he's actually a friend of both of us. I love Fred. I, yeah. I know him. I can actually claim that one. So it's the friend of the pods, okay? Fred, friend of the pods, sure. Um, uh, Fred Katz covers the Washington Wizards for the Athletic. Um I've known him for a very long time. We used to cover the league at Fox Sports together. Great guy. Uh, he used to tell me that I looked a lot like Tony Parker. And yes. I, I, yes. I, I got to say, I, I never really agreed with it too much. And, you know, it. I, I personally, like, I was fine with it. Like, Tony Parker, good-looking guy. Um my wife and my mom, uh, he's one of the few NBA players who they, they knew at the time and still know because of his uh, his dabbling in the tabloids for uh, not great reasons. And so they both hated him. So that, you know, that wasn't the greatest thing. But after Parker retired, Fred came up to me and told me that actually now I looked more like Patty Mills. And so uh, I was in... I can see that too, especially <laughs> if, you, if you braided your hair, if you grew it way out, I could see that one. Yeah, and I, I kind of like that one more. Just, you know, I look at, I follow Patty on Instagram and he, I mean, he's a stylish dude. Looks great all the time. Cut. Um, I was in the, uh, the Spurs locker room, uh, one of the last games actually before the season was postponed. And I was trying to talk to Patty for a story and... Uh, I just want to say that you know he was doing some some stretching and some I guess uh, some some he was working out in the locker room pregame and uh, his body fat percentage is probably like negative seventeen so 
Wish I had that going for me as well, but uh, I do like the Patty Mills comparison. I believe Patty Mills and Luke Babbitt were teammates at one point in Portland. So I think this is just really perfect, Michael. You know, here we are <laughs> uh, recreating in podcast form one of uh, the NBA's, you know, star-studded duos. I'll say this. I actually like both those comps. Fred, Ka- Fred Katz is right on the money with those. You do, and I mean this in a good way, you do sort of have a cologne model vibe to you, Michael. Like, I feel like I should be opening up a Sports Illustrated scratching you and being able to sort of get a little a whiff of like cool water or Davidoff or whatever, like coming off of you. I know you're, you present yourself as this big book reading dork on the podcast, but you really do have this like cologne model vibe to your whole personality. I don't really even know how to respond to any of this, but I I do appreciate that. You know, you're telling me that I look like a Calvin Klein model. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say that you're wrong. I'm I'm just, especially with my ego at the level that it is right now, you're only pumping me up to even further heights right now, Ben. Yeah, well, look, it's going to go the other way here. I'm going to turn on you, (laughs) especially after the Sam stuff. I'm going to turn on you. And, And I think all the listeners should tune in next week for when I do my heel turn and freak out on Michael for his disrespectful comments and his outrageous ego. I think we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. And guess what? I know you're all getting direct messages, text messages, phone calls, FaceTimes from everybody in your life saying, oh, I have so much time to fill. What are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to? Please help us spread the word of the show now more than ever. Uh, We're cranking out two episodes every single week. We're continuing with that going forward. So please help us spread the word uh, to anybody else who might be interested in in listening to the goofy stuff that we've got going on right now. Michael is on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Villasenvictor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben Doc Oliver on Twitter at Ben Golver. Be sure to sign up for my Washington Post newsletter. I've been writing a lot of coronavirus stuff at WashingtonPost.com slash sports. So check that out too. Hey, Michael, until next week, I will talk to you. Talk to you, Ben.